Hello, hello. It's good to be back. The Good Future podcast took an extended break this year, but now we're rebooting the platform bigger and better than ever. And to get us started, we're exploring the vitally important topic of natural capital and conserving biodiversity. Across a series of episodes, we'll dive into the investment risk factors that are driven by biodiversity loss, the negative impacts that our economy is having on nature, and why we've been so slow to price in these risks and to put a proper value on nature. Really, the stakes couldn't be higher. Nature is everywhere. It represents the clean air and water we depend on for our very survival. But it's also a vital input to the majority of economic activity around the world. The good news is that change is coming and investors are beginning to engage with environmental issues as a material business risk. On the show today, we have Rachel Lowry. She's head of conservation at WWF, and it says a lot about the sustainable investment movement that finally, conservationists and financial services are working together to identify hotspots of risk and establish sustainable models of capital allocation that can drive positive, measurable outcomes. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Rachel is a passionate environmental advocate, but more than that, she's focused on solutions. And in this episode, we dig into the practical actions that all investors can take to better align their portfolios with the goals of our economy, becoming nature positive by the end of the decade. This is the first in a series of episodes exploring the concept of natural capital. And to get us there, we have the support of a new good future sponsor, Greencollar. Greencollar is a developer and innovator of environmental market solutions. They recognize the power of putting a financial value on nature as an incentive to drive sustainable land management, cleaning up our waterways and avoiding further loss of biodiversity and animal species. Since launching more than a decade ago, Greencollar has become Australia's largest developer of nature-based carbon credit projects, and they're pushing the market forward with schemes like reef credits, which target improved water quality at the Great Barrier Reef. And their latest innovation is Nature Plus, a new form of biodiversity credits that aim to protect and restore ecosystems around the world. They're measuring biodiversity outcomes on the ground with a scientifically rigorous and verifiable methodology that puts a value on natural capital to enable investment in the conservation of high-value ecosystems. Reach out to the team at greencollar.com.au to find out more. All right, let's get into today's episode. You can find all the show notes and links on the website at johntreadgold.com. And that's where you'll also find the Good Future newsletter, your source of insights and updates about the world of sustainable investing. You'll stay up to date on trends. You'll get access to the latest podcast episodes and you might just get an early lead on the most exciting and high-impact companies and funds. But now there's nothing left to do but dive in to my conversation with Rachel Lowry. Here we go. Rachel, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for giving us some time today. Great to be here. Now, look, you and I met at an investment conference earlier this year, and to me, that really represents some major progress in the world of, of sustainable investing, where investors and conservationists are finally coming together. And of course, you and the WWF work hard to build these bridges, while investors, I think, have been far too slow to recognize the, the emerging crisis really of biodiversity loss. I don't use that term crisis lightly. Extinction rates alone, the, the data is super scary. So maybe to get us started, can you give us just a, a rundown, I guess, of, of the WWF role in conserving natural capital and whether that term natural capital is the way that, that you would term the work you do and how this then links to specific work that you're doing to translate really these risks into a language investors can understand? Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with sort of how WWF operates. So we're the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And WWF is a very solution-focused organisation. So, of course, we have to at times shine the spotlight on the crisis that you're talking about. Um, but more often than not, we tend to find people are aware of it, at least in some way, shape or form. 
what people aren't aware of so often is how we solve it. And so WWF's theory of change really is putting on the suits, sitting down at the table, talking with key decision makers across all sectors of society, listening, and then finding pathways forward. We are a charity, so we're part of civil society. So we do very much have a role, like all civil society members, in speaking truth to the scale of the problem and making sure we're science-based, making sure we're thinking about the problems from a community lens and a nature sort of environmental lens and an economic lens because that's important. We prioritise our solutions and the things that we throw our weight behind because we're a charity, we have limited resources, behind those that are more likely to be catalytic because we don't have time to keep fighting on the you know one front, one landscape, one seascape, piece by piece. If we look at the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, I think we're 71 months away from 2030. I feel like it was just yesterday I spoke at a conference where I said we're 82 months away from 2030. It really feels like yesterday. So we can feel that clock ticking and we're humble enough to be able to recognise we're winning battles, so to speak, but not the war. Each time we win on one front, we lift our gaze and you look around and we've lost traction on a number of other fronts. So that word catalytic is really important because we need to obviously look at things from a systems change point of view. If we don't change the system that we're operating in, the paradigms that society is moving through, we're just not going to get there by 2030. So that takes us to scale. And when you start looking at solutions that are going to be catalytic and will have impact at scale, you're naturally led down the pathway of looking at bankable solutions sometimes or, you know, having to look at nature through, you know, use that word, natural capital, natural capital lens, which is really about trying to help people recognise that nature has many values. Um, some people will look at nature and love it just because it makes them feel good, because it's beautiful, because they recognise the role that nature plays in purifying our air or our water. But the reality is our economic inputs rely on strong biodiversity in nature. And so there are many people that have tried to actually capture nature from a frame that helps us recognise exactly that, that nature can help us stimulate economic growth. And equally, if we don't invest in nature well, um, we can land ourselves into this, what people often refer to as this invisible debt that just keeps mounting every year. And there lies our problem. So when I talk about bankable solutions, you know, often some of the solutions that we're trying to throw our weight behind are those that can be commercialised because if you can commercialise a solution, it's more likely to be sustained rather than this flash in the pan putting our hand out and asking for grants and asking for philanthropy, which can work for a year or two, sometimes if you're lucky, even three to five. But eventually, inevitably, more often than not, some of these solutions start to fall off a cliff if they don't have a sustainable funding source. So WWF's role at the moment is very much trying to, it's continuing to try to sit at the right tables, work with the right decision makers, work with industry, work with government and keep an eye on the leading science and see where we can find those catalytic pathways, which often and increasingly more are leading us towards what we're starting to hear this termed up regenerative economy solutions. So there's some of the language there sort of to the, to the latter part of your question. You know, quite often part of the problem is that when we do sit at these tables, we all speak a different language. The reality is those terms don't come naturally to me. I've had to learn them. I've had to lean into them and embrace them to engage the audiences that I need to engage as Chief Conservation Officer at WWF. But my first degree was a science degree. I'm a trained zoologist. So the reality is to find myself, if someone come to me when I was studying zoology at Melbourne University and said, one day you'll be doing a podcast talking about natural capital or regenerative economy, I would have said, what now? <laughs> but the reality is WWF recognises that unless we do bring those core capabilities inside, so one of the hires that I've made in the last five years in WWF Australia is to bring in a conservation economist inside our conservation team because we've got to calibrate our language and you know, identify these shared goals and identify these shared pathways so we can get impact happening at scale. Well, I think, and I think that's what has 
me so excited about finally the financial services industry starting to talk about these words, biodiversity, natural capital, regenerative agriculture, regenerative economies. I think back to when I studied economics and one of the things in my core that wasn't comfortable with was the, the way economics didn't effectively value environmental resources. We called them negative externalities, which was this really prosaic word that actually captured sort of everything of value, right? As you talked about, it's the, the bees pollinating, it's, it's fresh water, it's resources under the ground, all of these things are so, you know, industry, business are so dependent on. And finally, the, the silos are breaking down, groups are coming together and WWF has been, you know, working, as you say, putting on the suits for a long time, trying to find solutions and I think if we come, we've talked about language, if we come to this word sustainability, in some ways it's the digital transformation of today, a word that has sort of lost its meaning. But all of these issues with climate change, measuring emissions, a lot of good work has been done there. Now we're trying to, to measure nature and biodiversity loss. But, you know, is it just an issue of sustainable resource use? You know, we're, we're putting demands on our natural capital that are greater than its capacity to regenerate. That's not sustainable, you know, in the way that we can't keep pulling oil out of the ground. We can't keep chopping down trees without letting them grow or, you know, we need to support the bees. They haven't yet sent us an invoice. Maybe they should. And so this, call it exploitation, poses its huge risks for companies you know, and the communities in certain areas. Why do you think that our modern markets haven't recognized the danger? You know, economics should, you know, recognize, okay, supply is diminishing here we, we've got to pull back is it is it just a problem with economic theories some of this growth at all costs where do you see that yeah i think it's, a, it's an excellent question and i think you partly answered it in asking the question the bees haven't sent the invoice right and so we're, we're a growth driven society our, our whole economy is built on growth and valuing growth and I think that we have, whether we say it explicitly or not, we have fallen into a paradigm of growth at all costs. And there is a bit of an ideology piece here. There's a race who can grow faster. You know, each sector mm. has got, is in this competitive space and who can, who can get the bigger share of the pie. We're so focused on that race that we're not necessarily looking backwards at what we're leaving behind and that invisible debt that I was talking about. Equally, though, interestingly, when you're racing, you're looking forward, but we're looking forward through a very narrow frame. And that's what, you know, this the, the notion of that word sustainability asks us to look more holistically around what we're leaving for future generations. But sometimes that, that just feels too far away. We're talking about what your next annual report's going to put out there. <laughs> we're not talking about what your grandchildren, you know, are going to be looking at from a legacy point of view more broadly when it comes to the the future. So I, I think that there lies our challenge. I, I think we have ultimately fallen into this slipstream. No, I don't think. I know. I know we have fallen into this slipstream of relying largely on an economy that is extractive and depletive. And one of the challenges is that I think those inside that system that are working and churning inside that system have come to think, well, I'm a realist. This is what it takes to grow our economy. This is what it takes to bring wealth to this current generation. And I think there is this degrowth agenda that sometimes pushes and sort of says, well, stop, let's cease growth altogether. And you've got this really jarring combination of language and ideals where those that are in this sort of system are going, you've got to be kidding me, no growth. And, and they're quite extreme points of views. I tend to favour the centre-forward approach to change, which is why I work for WWF, which says it, WWF is not really about a degrowth agenda per se. WWF is about growth that's regenerative, that replenishes, that's smart and just and fair, and that does take the time to look at that invisible debt and make sure that we're clearing that up and, in fact, you know, this nature positive movement is about, you know, leaving things better than when we found them. And you can actually still grow the economy and you can still commercialise solutions and derive profit, but you've got to shift the paradigm and you've got to bring values-based decision-making into the system and you've got to stimulate the markets to reward that type of effort, which I think we're going to see a lot more of in years to come. 
Gosh, that's a, that's a really great nuanced view of, of this concept of degrowth, which I think you're right, it gets people up on their haunches immediately. And, and I think that's right. It's not less growth, it's more growth, but the right type. That's right. right? GDP is such a poor measure of prosperity in our world and, and it's trying to find other methods, you know, I think well-being, the well-being budget yes. and, and this new kind of language and that's what comes through a lot in the impact investment sector in the in the different models they use of measurement and I think that maybe leads on to a question about how we do measure this you know let's try and get into some solutions that's what WWF's all about you know you're a mission-driven organization you, you'd be no stranger to measuring the impacts of your projects you have to report to your donors and your supporters what are what are some challenges you faced in quantifying your impact and I guess in answering that, how can that help companies that are now trying to start to measure their dependencies and impact on nature to then be able to to understand their risk? Yeah, it's a complex question because biodiversity in its own right is a difficult thing to measure because the term is so broad. But if I take it down to its basics, if if we're really achieving something from a regenerative economy point of view, then measurement should still be, one key measurement would be whether or not you're making profit. We're talking about a regenerative economy where we're saying we're still going to um, back in growth. We're just going to back in growth that's done better, smarter, that replenishes and regenerates as we go rather than extracts and depletes. So that impact investing is a great example where you look at impact investors and they're still ultimately measuring whether or not they're getting return on their investment. So there is that measurement which we can't take our eye off, but the return might be slower return. I've spoken to a number of impact investors that say when I make straight out investment, I expect X return when I'm going into an impact investment. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to give an extra three years before I expect return or I might be willing to take four to five percent, you know, etc. So, I think that's something that the impact investing field itself is still calibrating. From a biodiversity perspective though, it comes down to which landscape, which seascape we're planning on, how, you know, that business, that enterprise having impact on. And, you know, there are a number of different ways to look at, you know, whether or not you're being truly regenerative there. Sometimes they're going to be social measures like, you know, are you keeping an eye on marginalised communities and actually checking whether or not your regenerative enterprise is building inclusion and the number of people within that local community that are benefiting from that enterprise. Sometimes it's going to be as easy as the enterprise actually putting trees in the ground and you might have some hectare measures. Some of your measures may be proxy measures. They may be measures around whether or not species are able to thrive or bounce back in a certain area. It's going to depend on what it is the enterprise itself or initiative is trying to achieve ultimately. Water quality is something we can measure. Air quality is something we can measure. There are some things though that are really tricky to measure. They take time. These are slow burn initiatives. And, you know, there are a lot of people leaning into this to try to get better measurements. Science-based targets are moving now into the biodiversity space. But I think ultimately... What we need to focus on is sort of that leading part of your question, which is that solution-focused narrative. We've got a lot to learn from the climate movement. For decades, we were stuck in this really strong, dare I say, left versus right political tension. And it really wasn't until the solution-focused narrative around opportunity. What's the opportunity of tackling climate change? There's opportunity around job creation in the renew- with renewable energies. You know, this whole framing around united we shine, this race to the top of which nation around the world will be the first to work out how to export renewable energy because whichever nation works that out first is going to hold IP that's going to really reward their economy, right? And as soon as we started talking about the win-win paradigm with climate change, the united we shine, the renewable energy superpower, it was we started to shift out of this gridlock between fossil fuels, good versus bad, climate change, real or not real, and into this win-win, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we join this race? Why wouldn't we start to focus on the win-wins, jobs, environment, you know, economy? And we've got to get nature and biodiversity into the same frame. Ultimately, what's the equivalent to that united we shine for biodiversity? We've got to start turning into a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we invest in nature-positive solutions that are good for business? Yeah, well, and, and that's the progress 
that's been taken in, in, in climate action to measure emissions. I think, sorry, harping on this measurement issue. There were lots of challenges there. Everyone said, oh, it's too difficult, but we've now got there. And that's just one kind of metric and one KPI, which is emissions, as you mentioned. You then look at biodiversity. So many themes, so many different factors. You're looking at oceans, you're looking at land, soil, flora and fauna, a big job ahead of us. And so maybe if we just focus down on one little area, I think in Australia, it's becoming really clear that deforestation Mm. is a huge issue. Before we started, you mentioned deforestation-free beef as a campaign you're working on. Maybe you could talk us through that. I was hoping you'd mentioned deforestation, actually. So let's talk measurement of deforestation for a moment. About three weeks ago, WWF Australia launched what's called a a tree scorecard. It's Australia's first tree scorecard. Every Australian now can head to the website, they can pull up that scorecard, and they can actually get a very clear indication of how their respective state or territory is faring when it comes to protecting trees that are standing and restoring landscapes. You would think that data wouldn't be too hard to get, really. When the team came up with the idea and said, wouldn't it be great to rank the best state down to the worst state so that those in the worst state can put pressure politically and say, come on, I want our government to do better. Why are we the worst in the country at protecting our trees? It took us 18 solid months with more than two people full time pretty much to pull that data together. Because we don't have good measurement at the moment. We don't have good data sets. The state that measures deforestation from a a whole of state sort of land clearing point of view best is Queensland. They have what's called a SLATS system and they release the data transparently every year. The next best is New South Wales, but they don't release the data transparently. The rest don't have it. And federally, the annual data set that was coming out was lower than the whole entire of SLATS data set from Queensland. So you've got yourself a problem nationally around measurement. So when we talk about measurement, we've got to invest in it. You know, we could have a national SLATS system. I was up in Parliament House just three weeks ago talking about this to a number of political leaders from all different political parties. And, you know, the argument is, oh, yeah, it costs a bit. I mean, some of the estimates are actually $20 million a year. It's small bickies, really, to get Mm. good data that could really drive a lot of transparency into this system. But to get to deforestation more broadly, I mean, many know Australia is a deforestation hotspot globally. That means we're outstripping the, the landscapes that we clear sort of well and truly more than we're replenishing. And we're doing that in a rate at a rate that's been considered alarming and amongst the worst in the world. From a developed nation point of view, we are the worst in the world at land clearing. So we're cutting down our trees faster than any other developed nation. So that warrants pause for concern. When you say why and where, it's worst across Eastern Australia, Queensland and New South Wales now. So I mentioned those two states have got some decent data systems now, but that's only in recent years and we're yet to really see that data drive the type of progress we're going to need to see between now and 2030. But why? Why Queensland and New South Wales? There's a number of reasons, but largely production of beef is the single largest driver of land clearing in Australia. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about a regenerative economy point of view, what I like about this particular problem, it's a wicked problem, but it's not a doesn't have to be a good versus bad. You can produce beef in a way that does not perpetuate land clearing. You can produce deforestation-free beef. There are a number of pastoralists out there that are doing it because they don't want to be part of this crisis. The challenge is at the moment the market doesn't incentivize it and doesn't reward it. And so there lies, you know, an opportunity for Australia if we want to really pick a commodity to really lean into and solve up front Beef is there for the taking. There's going to be a number of of reasons to do this. One, you will not recover the koala in Australia and turn things around for the koala that was recently listed as endangered across eastern Australia if you don't shift towards the deforestation-free beef industry in Australia. It's just not possible when you look at the data. One of the key drivers of habitat uh, destruction for the koala is beef production. But so few Australians know about that. And you and I at the moment can't go to the supermarket and feel empowered as consumers to do much about that. There's no koala-friendly beef 
on the market yet. But this is where government can step in and, and provide those sort of mechanisms to incentivize. Uh, and it's where civil society has a role to play, WWF putting out that scorecard, me talking about this right now. We are working with industry at WWF. We, we, we work with Meat and Livestock Australia. We work with a number of industry partners to try to define what deforestation-free beef could look like and get an agreed definition. But we need to catalyse progress in this area. Progress is slow and we're going to need to look at some levers to really move beef into that regenerative economy pathway before we lose too much more. Mm, and what an opportunity for investors, right? Yeah. They've, they've gotten very good at having you know, negative screens for, I don't know, armaments and tobacco and, 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 and having a carbon footprint across supply chains. But now if you invest in, in food, if you invest in agriculture, you know, what, what's the deforestation footprint of that? That's right. Looking into some metrics and, and taking that, I guess, as a theme, as, as part of your theory of change. And I wonder, you've, as you said, you put the suit on, you get into the boardrooms, you're trying to drive solutions. Obviously, you look across the spectrum of, of all of the potential sort of touch points. But is there anything in particular that you see investors sort of approaches that, that they might get wrong or myths or perspectives you wish they would shift that could, that could make a lot of difference? That's a really interesting one. I, I, I think there's two things that spring to mind. One is there is this, this tension coming around climate and biodiversity at the moment. We're finally seeing this awakening globally. It's not just in Australia. It's globally that we need to tackle climate change yesterday, but today we'll have to do. And so there are an enormous number of investors at the moment that reach out to WWF and ask for advice around you know, investment from a climate lens. But when I do have discussions about, you know, some of the win-wins around that climate-nature nexus, it's almost like, oh, it's too hard. Like, you know, we're just going to start with climate mm. first. Let's get climate mm. worked out. We don't have time to just tackle the climate crisis. And one of my concerns is as investors, if we're just looking from a climate lens, we're missing an opportunity to get duality of impact off every dollar that we invest. Mm. And not all climate action initiatives are good for biodiversity, you know, building renewables right on top of ecological communities that may be threatened, not great. You would think that that would be a rare case study. More and more they're being brought to our attention. So let's get the investments around renewables happening from a fast, just and best lens. And when I say best, bring nature considerations into that lens. If we're having to threaten an ecological community or push a species closer to extinction to get that climate action, it's not a good investment. And sometimes you've got to dig a little bit deeper. I remember, and I'm not going to mention who or where, but I remember looking at an initiative that was exploring an alternative to single-use plastics. And this investor wanted me to take a look through the site and was very sort of proud of this investment. But when I dug deeper, you know, the idea was that this investment was using food scraps and food waste. But when there's not enough food scraps and food waste, they were using organic materials that were coming out of native timber harvesting, to be honest. And if you start to think about when you scale that particular initiative up large scale, we've probably robbed Peter to pay Paul because we want to make sure we've really got enough food waste and the systems in place to get the food waste to where it needs to get to before you've got these hungry machines that are going to need basically trees uh, to fuel them and so we've just got to keep thinking about the, the real win-wind and not the swapping out of one issue and then fueling the next one yeah that's right and this this nexus of climate change and biodiversity is so interesting and the view or the sort of thing that, that pops up is people saying oh this is just the next thing right we've done climate change now we're doing biodiversity it's a an add-on to esg but I wonder what's your perspective a bit more foundationally? Because to my mind, I mean, biodiversity, nature, that's everything. Like that sits above it all. And I think there's this, this really wicked problem, which is this positive feedback loop. If you lose more biodiversity, climate change gets worse. But at the same time, improving biodiversity, you can help reduce climate change, sequestration, all of these sorts of things. How do you see, I mean, you've talked through 
a bit there with those interactions, but is there a more sort of high level, like you know, infographic? We've <laughs> over, model? We, we, we've oversimplified, I think, the climate mm. and biodiversity crisis, even by giving them separate names, which I, I understand yeah. why we've had to do that. Mm. But the reality is, you're absolutely right. There's this feedback loop, and they feed one another. And so, you know, I, I can't tell you, John, the number of times I sit in a room or at a conference where someone's saying oh, it's okay, technology, there's a lot of investment in technology, we're going to find this technological solution that will sequester Mm. carbon from the atmosphere and we'll be able to scale that up. And I know I'm not the only person that when you hear that thinks, well, we've got trees, right? They're pretty amazing innovation. (laughs) They sequester carbon, they can be scaled because you can plant more. But for some reason we're putting our hopes on tech as an answer whilst we're clearing more trees than any other developed nation in the world. But if we recognise that Biodiversity action, you know, investing in nature is not just a nature-based action, it's a climate action, you know. We can create these carbon sinks and help protect threatened species. From a visualisation point of view, NASA released this really fantastic graphic recently around the world of sort of you can imagine the globe with these red marks and these green marks and these orange marks and the red is basically where you know, you've just got emissions soaring. The green is where you're actually drawing down more than you're releasing and the orange is sort of going in between. Australia has the potential to be this amazing green zone on that map. You know, we've got, we're a biodiverse uh, nation. We've got these incredible wild places that we could protect and stop decimating. And actually, we could shift from being a deforestation nation to a reforestation nation and really make that part of our national identity and make that a huge part of working towards our mission reduction. We have to make sure that we recognise and value the solutions that are in front of us. And at the moment, we tend to be putting a lot of stock and heart in tech-based solutions for the climate crisis, whilst over here, we're just destructing our landscapes and cutting down these trees that sequester carbon. Yeah. There's no way to get away from that complexity. And that's interesting. Yeah, I often... You know, my focus often on the, the language, on the communication side of it. And that's interesting that, that that effort to simplify it, to try and put it in an infographic, does it a disservice that we need to lean into the fact that this is complex adaptive system, this is an ecosystem and everything interacts with everything else. It's interesting, you know, when I was in Parliament House a few weeks ago, one of our political leaders said to me, you know, Rachel, very few people argue anymore that the last federal election was a climate election. We had a climate election, you know, Australians spoke. Mm. But I think we've oversimplified it up here on the hill at Parliament House. I think Australians, when they voted, thought they were voting for the environment, you know, Mainstream Australians, you know, the quiet Australians, whatever you want to call sort of mums and dads and those people out there going to work and not thinking about this every day and trusting that our government's doing the right thing. When they vote for climate, they think they're voting for the environment as well, for our wildlife and our wild places. But our politicians have taken it very literally. (laughs) And so you've got these big investments. You look at the last federal budget, it was very strong on climate investment. But nature and biodiversity, you know, Minister Plibersek's portfolio, far, far too low. And so, yeah, we have oversimplified it. That There's no doubt about that. Equally, there's some big wins for investors because the writing's on the wall for native timber harvesting, for example. You've just seen Victoria make a commitment to withdraw. We've just had Western Australia withdraw. The carbon market now is going to start strengthening the case. We're going to need to start investing in R&D and innovation around alternative wood products. We've got to look at the whole economic paradigm of native timber harvesting. It's not the smartest, most lean economic system we've got out there. And so there is just this wide open space for people to come in and start investing in solutions right now because that transition is inevitable. That's just another one like D-Free Beef. It's a matter of time. Our job is to catalyse it. Yeah, well, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that if possible. Let's always look at, I mean, risks are an important factor, but let's look at the opportunities. And what are the investable opportunities here? Are there there any key categories that you think are are, are worth sort of raising? Yeah, I think regenerative agriculture is one that we're going to be hearing 
more and more about and we're going to see a big mass movement behind globally and I just hope Australia starts to incentivize and push early and don't come in as laggards because there's some movement here in Australia but when you look at the global biodiversity framework that Australia signed on to last December there is strong acknowledgement that we need to look at food security and our food systems because our food systems are big drivers of that extractive depletive paradigm that we've been talking about but it doesn't need to be that way. We can start investing in the regenerative solutions. And I'm talking everything from sustainable seafood. I mean, WWF has, has had our first impact investment. And as a charity, we spun off an idea and have invited people in to invest in um, OpenSC, which is about trying to bring traceability into a system to try to, to create change. But I'd be looking at food commodities. There's going to be a lot of movement in that space if we're going to meet our 2030 development goals and government's going to have to start incentivizing and legislating change if we're going to get anywhere close to them. Yeah, regenerative agriculture is an amazing term. Again, looking at the language, I think it's really powerful and I think we all know, I don't know the, the value of going to the farmer's market, small scale, organically grown, but likely expensive and likely a premium product. But then how then do we shift from these immense monocultures that are feeding the world, making food affordable, that has a social impact benefit to scale regenerative agriculture? I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. You know, there's lots of groups, standalone investment investors popping up, mechanization of processes. And have a look in the States, you know, some of the investors in alternative proteins are big major investors that have come out of the sort of meat industry that see the writing on the wall and uh, putting their money where their mouth is now and starting to look at that sort of next wave. It's, it's really, it's fascinating. It's going to be not one magic bullet solution. The hunger for the solutions is going to continue to grow. There's no doubt about it. Same as for alternative wood solutions. Um, interestingly, we've got to keep an eye on other levers like the EU are front runners here and they've just started to announce they're not going to allow any deforestation, sort of commodities that are produced in deforestation hotspots, of which Australia is one, to be imported for sale in the EU. So there are other levers that are going to start to create change as well. You know, it, I think it will be very challenging for beef to be sold into the EU in a matter of years, the way we're producing mm. it now. Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think of the when we the detractors, the, the I would call them climate deniers, but those that argue that all of the climate scientists are wrong, they're, they're doomsayers. Look at what happened when they said, I don't know how long it was ago, 100 years ago, they said, we're going to run out of food because we simply can't grow enough food for the population. But then the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer popped up, right? And, and suddenly we can feed the masses. And to me, that keeps coming to mind because suddenly if we look at, take the biodiversity lens, Overuse of nitrogen is having a huge problem with the ecosystem, polluting fresh waterways. That's part of regenerative, the regenerative agriculture revolution is to work out ways to alternative fertilizers that don't have these negative externalities. To me, that's a, you know, a good example of not taking that simplistic route, growth at all costs. We look at the, the benefits of, of using Oil burning petrol, amazing for growth, but the negative externalities aren't factored into that. And often when we talk about the benefits, that's not brought in. One of the criticisms I receive probably most, and I think probably most civil society reps do, is you're oversimplifying things. It's not that easy. You know, you're mm. being an idealist. The real world looks like X or Y. And I'm sympathetic to that feedback because we're talking about really complex problems. And quite often we don't have all the solutions. And I've talked about defree beef here. I really don't think that one is rocket science, to be honest. It can be done. There are people out there doing it. We need to incentivize the market. But in some cases, it's just not, not that simple. And um, I think this is where we need to hold the mirror up and speak to investors directly and say, you know, it actually will never get more simple <laughs> unless we all, first of all, recognize the problem. And secondly, recognise the fact that the solutions are out there. We've flown man to the moon. We've invented Wi-Fi in Australia. We've invented FPOS. We invented the solar cell. We can do it, but we've got to actually want to. 
Um, we've got to align our values and our ideology behind wanting to find those solutions together and investing in the R&D to get us there. It, it probably won't happen accidentally or organically and we don't have time for it to happen accidentally or organically now. Mm. So if there are investors listening to this going, oh, I just think it's all a bit too simplified, yeah, they're wicked problems. The solutions are probably going to be complex as well, but we have to start somewhere. And mm. I think that we we really need to start holding financial services sector more to account, you know, where we're loaning and investing our funds and the flow of funds, that is a powerful sector that can really start rewarding those that are truly trying to back regenerative economy, nature positive enterprises. We'll start to see and 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 stop winding funds to the extractive, depletive. We're going to see that shift happening more and more. You know, Europe's moving there, absolutely. I sort of got my counterparts in in Europe, Norway, for example, reaching out often saying, you know, are you starting to see this in Australia? We are on a smaller scale, but again, there'll be other levers coming our way that will help shift this along, like potentially the mandatory disclosures uh, and impacts around biodiversity. That will be another thing that will help us sort of shift into that solution focused mode. But there's a reward for business that do it first and earlier. And there are a lot of businesses working that out. When I was in Montreal helping lead the Team Australia sort of civil society input into the negotiations in Montreal last December, the number of business representative at, at BioCop in Montreal was 10 times more than the prior two years. It was huge. And it's because businesses are recognising the opportunity of being front runners here at finding those solutions first, aligning their brand to them and getting reward for it before it's mandated and there's regulation that for, enforces it. So, yeah, plenty of opportunity there, but it does start with wanting to. Mm. Well, Oh, look, I could talk about that all day, but let, let's dig into the global biodiversity framework yeah. finalised in Montreal, the many decades it took to get to the Paris Agreement in terms of climate change. The biodiversity approach has been far quicker. We've, we've now got this big hairy goal, 30 by 30, protecting 30% of land by 2030. Mm -hmm. As you say, you were there, big business representation. Can you tell us a bit more about what goes on at these events? Yeah, well, the aim of... COP15, as you mentioned, was to sort of get that Paris Agreement for nature. And in a lot of ways we did because the 1.5 degree equivalent for nature was the agreement with 196 signatories to halt and reverse the decline of nature by 2030. So that, you know, when you look at it that way, the halt and reverse the decline of nature frame leads us towards a nature positive agenda. And there was a lot of debate about whether or not just halting is enough because right now we're not even close to halting, let's be honest, globally. We just look at the number of threatened species that join the red list every year versus those that come off. You look at the deforestation rates, you know, it's, it's alarming. The reason halt and reverse the decline got through is because there was recognition that that invisible debt has grown too large. If we were to just halt now, we're going to do a disservice to future generations. And so we need to move into repair and regeneration mode. So that was a big, great outcome in its own right, that meta frame. But at the end of the day, it's just words unless you start to see action fall behind it. So there are a few more iconic wins. You mentioned 30 by 30. Yep, there's a commitment to protect 30% of landscapes, seascapes and fresh water, which was a late inclusion and a good win in the the um, negotiations. So Australia's got some work to do there. It's not just about picking any patch of sea or any patch of land and saying, all right, you're protected. We need to protect representation of ecological communities. We need to make sure that a fair share of grasslands are in there. And it's not all forests, for example, that, you know, we're really smart about what we're protecting and we're not sort of throwing low economic value patches of landscape into our protected areas that no one wanted anyway, that there's no threatened species on. So there's hard work to do there because that's going to require a lot of work, a lot of engagement with private landowners as well. And it's going to require incentivized, you know, funding to actually access the landscapes to get that representation right. I think we will achieve a lot of it through Indigenous protected areas as well. But there's a lot of work to be done. And at the moment, no funding committed to achieving that particular goal. Gosh, let's expand a little bit. Let's look beyond 
our jobs that look beyond WWF. I mean, Good Future Podcast is all about the investment approach to solving these problems, but I think the core of that is a mindset change. You can't change the world unless you change yourself. And so how what what's your journey been to, I guess, you know, in some ways it's it's an environmentalist approach, it's somewhat spiritual. The, the barriers are now breaking down with, oh, you're a greenie or you're an environmentalist. I think everyone's an environmentalist because we all breathe fresh air. Some are just ignoring the reality and thinking short term. So, yeah, have you been on a journey? Do you feel that, that linkage to the earth is being embodied and embraced more? What's your view there? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I'm definitely evolving as we all are. I came into this sector, I opened a door that many open when they get into it, which is I, I love animals. You know, I was that kid that was out sort of climbing trees to check what was in the nest and chasing frogs and I would love, you know, whether it's domestic or wild animals, I just loved animals. And I, I grew up thinking I was going to be a vet, to be honest. And then suddenly at university discovered this whole world of zoology, which no career counsellor had ever told me about, and suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, you mean I can make a living from protecting wildlife and wild places? Like that feels to me like yeah, it speaks it speaks to my passions. But then, you know, I, I, I entered the conservation sector more from a, I think people just need to be aware of the problem. So I went and did an education degree. How do I educate people? How do I communicate about this? And then I realised after spending a lot of time in zoos, working for zoos, running education programs, a lot of people can know about the problem and still not do anything different. They go back home, life gets busy, they put on the TV or they jump on and do emails and they still go and buy the same products that are driving the extractive depletive are pushing threatened species towards extinction. And even people that care couldn't still do that because sometimes convenience wins. And so that sort of led me more towards WWF theory of change, which is around finding the solutions, not just raising awareness of the problem, but finding solutions. You need all types across civil society. You know, I sort of greatly admire those that scale the wall and, and strap themselves to the trees and, and, and raise awareness of the issue and just fight the bad stuff. But I'm I've certainly in my own evolution been drawn towards backing and advocating the solutions and the, the best one we've got available while still trying to find the next best one. And I think partly I've come there because I'm the daughter of a farmer. My brother is a butcher. My dad grazes cattle. I'm really mindful that when we talk about something being bad and we say end it, stop it, we're probably advocating for my family to be out of work. And I'm not okay with that. Whereas solution-focused advocacy and influence is about creating more jobs. It's about creating a better way. It's not about just stopping the bad. It's about bringing in the new. It's about bringing in the regenerative. It's about finding ways forward that benefit communities, that benefit nature, that benefit climate. So that sits well with me, but it's not easy. Oh, look, thank you for sharing that. No, I think that, and, and that was great to give people, you know, some of your background and understand where you've you've come from. I think that that really helps people who are starting their journey or on their journey or, you know, it's so easy to lose momentum we need to remain optimistic. There's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, but but that's not going to get us anywhere. Practical takeaways. You know, WWF is, is excellent at that. You can jump on the website. There's endless reports to read and, and lots of campaigns that they can become involved in. But in that day-to-day, what, what would be one takeaway that you'd like to leave people with, the, the change they can make? Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to squeeze in two. So, so one is I work in civil society and I have for the last five years. Your charities are really important. They provide this unbiased voice. None of us are invested in any one particular industry. It's science-based. It's shining the spotlight on areas that need change. Find a charity and support them because you can't do the good work that WWF leads or that any charity leads without people being generous and backing a charity that aligns with their values. The more we back them in, the better they get. I mean, I can hire more capabilities, et cetera. So that's one. Mm. The second one would be to say, you know, we're all consumers and while we're waiting for government to incentivize and get the right legislation and everything else in, we incentivize markets every day. So where we invest, whether it's our actual investment portfolio or whether we put our coin where we put it at the supermarket, 
pick just one food commodity. I know how busy we all are. I'm a, I'm a full-time working mum. I get it. Pick one, whether it's beef, whether it's cotton, whether it's your seafood, start somewhere. Mm. Do the research and back in the enterprise, the business that's trying to do the best. Reward them. Just start there. And once you've gotten that research done and you're comfortable and you're happy with that product, take on the next commodity. If we all did that, we'd be driving, I think, this regenerative economy harder and faster. Oh, great. Perfect. That's what Good Future is all about. And look, to wrap up, everybody would love to know a book recommendation in within the industry or perhaps just what's on the bedside table. I'm going to recommend uh, Naomi Klein. What was it called? I just finished it recently. On Fire, On Fire, The Case for a Green Deal. It's a hard read. It's grounded by a lot of um, science, but it, it really articulates the urgency. And if I can convey one message, it's that we don't have another decade to tinker around and get this right. When I was reading, that's what was drove home to me. It, you know, I actually had to take some breaks from the book. As a mum with two young kids, I kept finding you know, that ecophobia, that moment of despair. Yeah. It's heavy going, but everyone should read it because mm. the urgency is conveyed really well. And the idea about this green new deal, we can do things differently. We've got to want to. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Now, look, Naomi Klein, is she's been at it for a long yeah. time. Her book, No Logo, oh, okay. uh, from a long time ago. I was an, an idealistic, you know, 20-something at university when I read No Logo, and it was all about sweatshops and that book pretty much single-handedly identified Nike as using sweatshops. And what's interesting is that Nike sort of bore the brunt of that, but they made such big changes that now they're actually the leader. And another branding issue is that Nike doesn't really lead with this clean, green, sustainable perspective. And I wonder if that's because they've got that background to lead, mm. to lead with that would rehash. And so they've possibly decided to do the work behind the scenes and get out there and let that tick work harder for them and have that as a fallback yep. if they need to. Really interesting. I haven't read that, but I'll pick it up. But she's got a journalist background, so she knows how to do her research. She knows how to take complex information and make it palatable. Yeah. That's right. She works hard. Rachel, this is excellent. Thank you for everything you've shared today. You know, this is part of a broader series covering the spectrum of of natural capital and biodiversity from that investor perspective. And I think this is a this is an amazing starting point for everybody to get a feel for, I guess, the gravity of the crisis, but also the fact that there's plenty of opportunities and we can all get involved. So thank you. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Look forward to hearing the other series. There's lots of great work out there. We just got to back them in and join them. Excellent. Stay tuned. 